This is Outside In, and I'm Charles Travail. And today I'm with Dan Lewis. And Dan is the co-founder and CEO of Convoy, a business started in 2015 and in the logistics business. So today we're going to be talking about everything from entrepreneurship, from supply chain, COVID, and a bunch of other interesting aspects around customer and how to grow a business as well as Dan has done. So Dan, welcome to Outside In. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for having me on. So Dan, let's start by talking about the problem in the business that you've started. What problem are you really solving? Because that'll get us into the whole industry and understanding where you fit. Yeah, happy to talk about that. So we're focused on the trucking industry. It's one of the largest industries in the world. In the United States alone, it's over $800 billion a year spent on trucking services. Everything that you can see around you is moved on a truck. You have a notebook on your desk, probably went on eight different trucks from wherever you know the, the original plant material was to your desk. To make that happen, there's a very large network of trucking companies out there. There's almost a million trucking companies in the country. The average one has about three trucks. It's an extremely fragmented industry. And the problem we're trying to solve is how do you reduce waste and how do you increase the quality of experience for the driver and the delivery service and the speed of delivery for companies that need to move things? We've been working on digitizing trucking. So getting all these different trucks and small trucking companies online so we can communicate with them in real time. We have visibility into where they are. And then we can understand what kind of freight they would be ideal to run and then make sure that they're matching to that kind of freight. You don't want to have the wrong truck driver do a job, or I say wrong as in you know, the less efficient, less optimal driver, because they're going to have to run more empty miles on the way to the pickup. They might be at the wrong times. So they have an inefficient appointment time. They're going to run empty miles at the end. They don't really want to go in that direction, so it costs more, and it actually creates a lot of waste for the system. Interesting. So just give us a sense of, you know, maybe in 2015 when you looked at it and how you would characterize the industry and why you felt digital transformation was going to be such a huge opportunity. In 2015, most truck drivers that we were in contact with did not yet have a smartphone. They were not online. The only way to get a hold of them was to text them or call them or email them or even fax them in their truck. And just that basic fundamental lack of direct access, location information, data sharing, document sharing, et cetera, between that truck and that driver and then their customer made it so that it was harder to achieve great service outcomes. It was harder for companies to know where their stuff was. It was harder to match the right truck to the right job, again, in this extremely fragmented industry. Right around the end of 2014, early 15 is when the smartphone became the free phone. So until then, if you wanted you know, an iPhone or a, an Android phone, they were pretty expensive when you went to the phone company to renew your and get a new phone with your upgrade of, or the renewal of your service plan. That changed around then, and then everybody started to get these smartphones. So we saw the opportunity to take advantage of that technology transformation and everyone adopting this new technology to change this industry. Yeah, and I've heard you say that one of the real breakthroughs or one of the difficult things in the early days was to get truck drivers using your app. And I'm sure back in whatever year we were, 15 or, or shortly after that, it was difficult in any industry to start getting people to really use apps. But how did you go about doing that? Dan, because that, that, I think, is probably the real breakthrough in your business. When you've got that app on a driver's phone and the app's working and the driver's using it, then things are going really well for you. Absolutely. 
It's the building block of everything else. If you don't have that, then you can't build all the other services. I faced a lot of rejection early on. And I remember <laughs> going to truck stops all over Washington state and trying to find places where I could have conversations with truck drivers and see what their problems were, what they needed. So I could know what I should build. Just having those conversations was a little bit hard at first. I was pretty nervous to go into a truck stop. You know, I didn't dress the part. I walked in there, I kind of had like a clipboard and some Starbucks gift cards to hand out. And I was like, this is the wrong, wrong thing. But I ended up cornering some people as they were filling out their logs or walking back to their truck. I ended up also finding a great location, which is sort of this out of the way truck fueling station with a blind corner. So trucks would turn around there and pull in. There's only one or two spots. There's no business around there. I would just stand there and hang out with them while they were filling their truck up. And that was how we got started. We actually met drivers that way. Then we, we started looking online. There are a lot of trucks in the United States. You have to register if you start a new trucking company. Even if you're just one person, you have to register with the federal government, the motor carrier authority. And so there, were, there was a ton of information available about different truck drivers. And we were able to look them up by location and contact and call them. Later on, we discovered there were other easier ways to kind of find drivers offline. But it was sort of a journey figuring out how to learn and, and figure out if they'd want to use it. But once you figured out you know, who they were, the value proposition was, we have work for you. And if you use the app for the entire job, we will pay you very quickly. And that was so important. You're living sometimes job to job or have very little available cash reserves. Getting paid quickly is extremely important. So that was one of the strongest drivers of truck driver adoption early on. So that's great. And I, I want to come back to this subject of what I guess what we would call ethnography. You became your own ethnographer. You went out and found, mm -hmm. you, you had the conversations, you got your hands dirty in the, in the industry, and you, you started to really understand it in depth. I'm assuming, Dan, that also helped you in the startup phase of raising some money. And I've, again, I've heard you tell the story about how you raised money for a startup in an industry that was not at all fashionable at the time you were doing it. There weren't a lot of startups in this area. And so, you know, we all know that investors tend not to like things that are very unfamiliar. So how, how did you go about doing that? It's a great question. I knew a few truck drivers and had some exposure to that through a very small family business in, in the delivery space. But what I realized was I didn't really understand the industry. I needed to get out and have a lot of conversations. So all the discussions with truck drivers were mirrored on the shipper side and on the broker side, just going out and having conversations across the industry. And what I would do is kind of write up my thoughts every night in terms of what I had learned and what I thought the problems were. And I started to create this problem structure, which is I'm not going to start with and go to investors with all of the answers. I'm going to go to them with a really well-articulated problem. And having dozens, maybe 100 total conversations as the direct source for that that identification of a problem was really powerful with investors in particular. It wasn't something that they were as used to seeing from somebody in a startup kind of exploring a new space. So a lot of times somebody had an idea and they wanted to push the idea. This is going to make this interview better. It's going to work. But it didn't really start with direct voice of the customer and problems. That made a big difference in the early days of people finding it interesting. And what I had to do when I sat down and talked to an investor was ask, on a scale from zero to 10, how much do you know about trucking? And that was actually using my first question in any conversation because it kind of disarmed the conversation. We didn't need to pretend like we were experts in trucking. They didn't need to pretend like they knew everything about trucking. And we could kind of say, okay, actually, we're both figuring a lot of this stuff out. You haven't invested in the space yet. You're at one out of 10. Let me just walk through how this industry works and I'll do it through like what I've learned. And I think it built confidence that 
in the future, I would continue to focus on learning because one of the things that's really critical for entrepreneurship and for building a company is to never stop trying to learn about the customer in the market you're, you're solving for. Never get too confident in your own knowledge. So how do you keep that up? In, you know, you're, you're seven years on now, Dan, and you, you did that as the co-founder and that worked, got you some money, got you moving, helped you recognize the priorities to be successful in the early days. As you know, as you scale, you've worked in these big, huge tech organizations. You've worked at Microsoft and Google and Amazon. And how do you keep that spirit of understanding the customer's problems in the culture of the company? Yeah. You have to be very deliberate about doing it. It won't organically happen as much as you would like it to because it's uncomfortable to get out of your quote comfort zone and go talk to people that you don't know personally and that you don't relate to very easily. There's several things we do. One is that we've always tried to bring the customer into the company as well. So that's making sure that people across Convoy, even if it's not their direct job or having conversations or listening to conversations with customers, we'll ask customers who can record the discussion so other people in the company can listen to them. We have a customer advisory board. We bring customers in to our quarterly all-hands meetings. We have an all-hands meeting every week, and we'll bring customers in kind of regularly to talk to the company. And then there's some values things that we've done, which is we have a, a system of values, and two of those values are start with the customer and love problems, not solutions. And the second one is the driver of curiosity, which is we should just be really obsessed with learning what our customers' problems are in different spaces, in their trucking space, because... That is what matters most for solving that. And we can't assume that the way we solve it today will be the right way to solve it two years from now because the problem will evolve and the available solutions and technologies to solve it will evolve. So we're constantly having those conversations. And then the start with the customer one was actually when we added later. It wasn't one of our original customer values or our original company values. And the reason is that we, everything we did when we started was customer-centric. We didn't know how to build a trucking company. We didn't know how to do this. So we had to just go talk to customers. And we took that for granted. And then we woke up four or five years later and realized there were a bunch of parts of Convoy that were not customer-obsessed. And it was not part of you know, our daily operating model as much as it used to be. It had shifted more to our own internal investments and you know, how do we make sure this, this geography has a healthy network and that the economics here look right and the, and the numbers? And there's nothing wrong with kind of learning about that, but you have to also have that customer obsession. So we just went back and changed our values and added it and said, you know, let's just make sure it's explicit because the next 100 employees to join this company should see that front and center. And we can't believe they're just going to get it through osmosis of being around people who are here for a while. I love the way you talk about your values. Sometimes in larger organizations, you know, they're kind of foundational. They never change. They're sacrosanct. They're, they're on the walls. They're sort of etched into the building. You know, it's, it's, they're, they're permanent. In some, some cases, they really are. You seem to see them rather differently. And I think you've told me you've learned some of this from Amazon, where the, the, the values are really deeply embedded in the operational aspects of the business. So I'm fascinated that you are changing your values, you know, quite regularly or adding a new value. Just tell us a little bit more about that, Dan, your philosophy around your values. So I think it's important for a company to establish some set of values and then really build those values into the fabric of how the company operates from the interview questions you ask to, you know, the qualities you look for to what you reward people for in reviews. I print them out. We had laminated copies in every table in every room at Convoy and I have it on my desk. 
and I would share them with customers, investors. It's a very powerful conversation with customers as well. Like, this is what we believe in. How do you feel about these things? What do you think we should care about? You know, the way they evolve, though, is we've actually had two times at Convoy where we've made significant changes to the values, but we don't do it all the time. And I kind of think of it as it should be hard to change it. Like, it shouldn't just be something I wake up and I'm like, oh, let's change it today. I should, I should have to kind of like create some own gates for myself. But we should see what's going on in the world. There may be something that's really important socially. There may be something that's really important economically, environmentally, or something we learn about ourselves that we realize we've missed. And so we should go back and be comfortable updating it because one of the values is love problems, not solutions. And I take that to heart as in the problem we're trying to solve is to create an efficient, effective culture where people have an understanding of how to like engage with each other. And there's guidance that lets them speak up, lets them kind of be more empowered to engage. And if they quote the value or, or like reference a value when they do something, it adds some weight to it and, and reminds people that we're on the same team and we have the same thing we're trying to do. That's the problem we're trying to solve. Probably others as well. One solution for that is to have a set of values. But that, again, the solutions are temporary. They will change over time. There probably are 10 other things we should do in the future to improve our culture. And I really want us to remember that. And I, I worry, maybe it's because I grew up you know, watching companies like Blockbuster disappear and be replaced by mail delivery and the digital streaming. And in my mind, I remember thinking like, entertainment of humans has been a problem since the dawn of time. <laughs> the solution has probably changed 50 times over millennia. Like how we entertain ourselves has changed so many times, but that problem is, is the same. So it's a little bit weird, a weird example, but it's kind of like, I want to have that mindset because I worry that if we don't, we'll be the next company that's disrupted. We'll be the one that's phased out because we'll be so entrenched in whatever we built already. Yeah. I've also heard you talk about speed as an asset, or I think you called it speed as a feature. And uh, having started a company myself, we didn't actually build it in as a value, but you, you've done that. And I think it's very smart. Just tell us a bit about why you did that, Dan. I believe that one of the strategic and comparative advantages a new company and a small company has versus an incumbent is the ability to move faster, period, on almost all dimensions. Hire faster, change strategy faster, build a tool set faster. You have so many disadvantages when you're a small, early stage company trying to get off the ground and get into orbit and frankly survive, not go to business, that you have to lean into all of your advantages. We didn't start by writing the values down. We, we waited and we wrote them down about nine months into the life of the company. That was actually advice I got from Jeff Bezos, which was when they thought about building a value system, they didn't start with it. They wanted to codify what they liked about how they were operating. And I was like, that's really smart because I don't want to... It feels artificial to just start out and write a bunch of things on the wall. So when we look back nine months into, into the, the company, we liked that about ourselves. We're like, we're going and we have a sense of urgency. And so we actually created a value called always have a sense of urgency. We later changed it to have a sense of urgency because I realized there's a trade-off around diving deep and, and really understanding something and, and urgency. And sometimes you have to, the judgment that comes from leadership and from experience is knowing that trade-off. So I wanted them both to exist. And then I explicitly say, sometimes you trade off one for the other. You don't have to do all the values all the time, right? When sometimes one is important, the other one's not. I don't believe all of our values are used every day. It's just they're important things that are part of what we believe. So I know we haven't talked much about the freight business itself, but you have this wonderful North Star, endless capacity, zero waste. 
is a kind of evergreen North Star. Tell us about perhaps some of the problems, because new problems occur all the time, particularly in a market like freight, where we've seen disruption to supply chain like we've never seen in our, in our lives. Tell us a little bit about some of the problems that you see today, Dan, and that you're, you're actively trying to fix. To your point, the market changes very quickly and frequently in the freight industry. Historically in the United States, our data has shown that there are twice as many freight recessions as macroeconomic recessions that happen. So the market cycles twice as fast. Today, there are a handful of challenges. Companies that ship freight have gone through an extremely volatile period during COVID. At some level, there's, there's a lack of, or there can be concern that volatility is here to stay and the market is going to keep going up and down and the cycles are going to be more aggressive. That is a significant issue if, you're, if your mission and your job as a company is to make sure your products get delivered and all of the raw materials are showing up on time. Ensuring that shippers have available capacity that's committed, guaranteed is important and building pricing, contract, service structures to do that is really important. Another challenge is reducing waste. And one of the biggest forms of waste is every time a truck shows up in a location for to be loaded or unloaded, it has to set an appointment. And the way the appointments are structured is completely different across most different shippers and then across their facilities. So you have thousands, millions of permutations of pick up and drop off appointment scheduling requirements and different systems for doing appointments. That creates the inability to really build these efficient appointment optimization systems, which would, which would allow a truck to be able to get a round trip. So imagine if the appointments don't line up, you can get the trip there, but the appointment to get the trip back doesn't line up. So you end up not being able to get a round trip. That leads to empty miles, lots of waiting around, burning fuel, wasted time for the driver, you know, less hours home with their family. There's so many things that come from that. We just launched this scheduling consortium actually with two of our competitors earlier this week to start to build standards and work against that. So, you know, I think it's about making sure you have capacity and we don't run out, you know, maybe we have trucking capacity and making sure that we're running our system efficiently and reducing waste are two really big things the industry is struggling with right now. When you look forward, you know, how important is something like autonomous driving, trucking? And I'd like you also to talk a little bit about sustainability in that as well, because I, I know you have this concept of empty miles and that you, you feel there's a massive amount of waste that could help all companies reduce their carbon. I don't know how big a part of your marketing or your story that is, but I, I get, well, we all know it's going to become a bigger part of all of our lives in future. So how do you see the future? It's a big question, Dan, but just your perspective on it. I'll start with sustainability. And these are obviously, yeah, like you said, big parts of the future of our world and our, and our business. Today, about 35% of the time when a truck is running down the highway, it's empty. When we talk about empty miles, that's what we're talking about. We will never get to zero, but the goal is to try to reduce that. And so we set this aspirational mindset of let's get to zero empty miles. You know, like that's, that's to be the, make that the aspiration. Let's figure out all the ways we can potentially do that. And if you do that, again, you reduce environmental waste, unnecessary carbon emissions from burning diesel fuel. You also save time and kind of make the driver's experience better. They're spending less time waiting around. They're being more productive with their time. And therefore, they can have a higher quality of life on the road. And there's other things you can do to improve quality of life. So I think sustainability is both around the sustainability of the, of the career and the job and the people involved, as well as the environmental sustainability. We didn't really know how to measure empty miles and empty mile performance and improvement in the early days. But one thing I'm proud of us doing was we still set goals around it. 
because we knew that it was aligned with everything from a business and environmental sense we wanted to do. So we set goals saying, let's try to reduce waste and reduce empty miles. And I remember talking to the company and, and very smart engineers in our company, uh, and obviously others as well, but a couple of engineers asked me like, hey, this methodology is kind of BS. Like, I don't really believe this is like a totally accurate methodology here and here. And I don't think we're really measuring it correctly. And I don't know if this is actually true. I was like, you're right. It's not perfect. It's actually not an ideal methodology. And we don't really have the data and ability to do this, but we're just going to set a goal. And we're going to tell the company there's a goal and we're going to measure it every month. And then next year, we'll try again and we'll probably be better. And then we'll do it again. And I think it took three or four years of doing that relatively imperfectly to get to the point where we actually felt like we had a really solid way to measure this. And we had solid underlying data. And then we released a sustainability report for the company. And we started providing sustainability reports for the shipper customers that use us and telling them what we were seeing in their operations in terms of how efficient they are and how much waste they're generating. We started allowing shippers to choose appointment times that would reduce waste by optimizing for other jobs. And we just started building into our system. So I think it's a really big part of the company. It's not like we've solved it. It's something that we're going to continue to invest in. And we partner with anybody who wants to partner with us on it. Yeah, great. I think I've heard you say that if we just filled all the freight 100%, we probably have more carbon benefit than, than electric vehicles, certainly for a period of time. But um, what, what about autonomous, though? How is that going to change the trucking industry in the short and medium, medium terms? That's a really good point you made right there, though, by it, which is in the long run, moving to different fuel systems like electric trucks, electric vehicles will reduce waste in a massive way. But that's a long ways off and replacing trucks takes a long time. So in the interim, it's about efficiency. It's about reducing waste. And when I think about autonomous trucking, it's a little bit different. Again, go back to the problem it solves. Well, in trucking, you're limited to driving 11 hours a day as a truck driver, approximately. That's your hours of service. So once you hit that limit, you have to stop. If you didn't have that limit, the truck could run, let's say, 22 hours a day. So now you're able to get product delivered twice as fast. You're making each asset significantly more productive. You're allowing business and the economy and the supply chain to perform at a higher level, which reduces waste. It's deflationary. It's better for the whole system. And it allows the participants to be more productive and make more per hour that they're engaged or, or more per day, I should say. The biggest challenge for solving it right now, I think, is that the technology is not quite there. And there's not a lot of political appetite, both because it creates safety concerns on the road. It's unlikely that a truck could really drive by itself in all of these road conditions, even on highways. Something would happen, things go wrong, and you need a person to intervene, which creates delays and, and backups. And you know, the idea of no drivers in a truck, there's millions of truck drivers. And so it kind of is against the culture and the industry of, of employees in this industry. And so I think we got to find a way to solve both of those. And I actually believe autonomous will play a major role in trucking because of the massive benefit we just described, being able to do things effectively twice productively. Many people propose that the way it should work is you have kind of a model where there's local trucks running and they drop off the trailers in a hub and then the hub autonomously with no person in the truck, an autonomous truck picks it up and drives it across the country, drops off another hub and it gets driven locally by a, a person. That could work. I think that's way far off because I think that middle segment of being able to run with no person in the truck is highly unlikely. And I also think that it creates actually a lot of inefficiency in local markets where there's traffic congestion. If you also have to go to the same hub point or one or two hub points, it's going to, you have to go out of your way. 
So my, my philosophy is we should just have drivers stay in the truck the entire time. And there's a thing in driving today, it's called team driving, where two drivers sit in the cab and they hand off control back and forth. And when the other one's driving, they go in the back and they reset their hours. So they can team across the country and get there twice as fast. Let's have a team handoff with you know the robot. And the driver stays in the truck, deals with anything that comes up, and then the robot takes over and drives for the majority of the highway portion. That's a lot of thinking on it, but I really think it should happen. It's going to be better for the industry in the long run. We need to do it in a way that really solves these other challenges that I described. So Dan, last question. We have a lot of budding entrepreneurs who listen to this podcast. And you've been at this now for about seven years. I believe it's the first startup you've done. I don't know that for sure, but I I believe it is. I hear so many people saying they want to be an entrepreneur. And I also hear a few entrepreneurs say, not everyone's cut out for it. (laughs) You know, it's a wonderful thing if you have the resilience and the grit and all the things that are required to be a successful entrepreneur. What, What would your advice be to those budding entrepreneurs? Here's my advice on being an entrepreneur. It will be harder than you think. Make sure you have incredible people around you that are going to be in it for the long run. At least one or two other people, whether it's co-founders, a first investor that's also really a partner, that your family signed up, you know, and that there's going to be people on that journey with you. But if you're interested in doing it and you're excited about a problem and you're excited about this feeling of being part of the story, everybody wants to be part of a story and a narrative. It's way more fun than doing a job when you're part of a journey and a story. And you can do that within a big company too. But if you feel that and like you want you know, to have that experience, you should absolutely try it if you can. I believe in experiencing the full range of life. What are all the experiences that I feel like would be really exciting and important to have in life? And how do I find an opportunity to do that? And I think being an entrepreneur for me is something that I felt since I was a little kid. I was doing this, trying to find ways to do it as a kid. And I admired entrepreneurs. I remember even in, you know, in middle school and elementary school and stuff like that, like reading about it. So I would never suggest someone doesn't do it. I would just make sure they have the right people around them. And one last thing I'll say on that is when I was interviewing people early on, I was like trying to get them to leave big, comfortable jobs to come to a scrappy startup that paid a lot less. And I remember what I would do is I would draw someone's career on a piece of paper. And I'd say, here's your income line. Time is the x-axis, income is the y-axis. Here's how much you make per year over the next 50 years or 30 years or whatever, you're, how long you want to work. And I'm like, this little thing you're doing right now at the startup, it's a little dip down for two years. In the grand scheme of things, it's only going to make you more employable. And it's really, if you can afford it in the short term, it's not a long-term risk for your career. There's almost only upside in having that experience. So it's sort of, if you think about the big picture, it's, it's a little less risky and you got to keep that in mind. Yeah, that's a great answer, Dan. Listen, thank you so much for um, sharing some of your time with me and our listeners. It's been really fascinating. I've learned a little bit about the trucking industry, which is also fascinating. And I had no idea of the scale of the industry. But most interesting is your the way you're um, challenging the industry and you're getting recognition for doing that and you're being successful. So good luck to you over the next couple of years. And hopefully we speak again, Dan. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, I'd love that. Thanks for having me on. Outside In is hosted by Charles Travail, Executive Chairman of the Interbrand Group, which includes Interbrand, the world's leading brand consultancy, and C-Space, a global customer agency. Outside In is produced by Daniel Sills, 
If you like what you hear, share this episode with a friend or colleague, or leave us a review wherever you listen to Outside In.